Hello. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, my friend. How are you? Are you good? I'm good. First week back at work. Raring to go? Yeah, well, rearing to go. That's uh, three good words. Yes? Uh, that's good. Um, I just thought we would, you coming from the aviation industry, mm -hmm. um, a mate of mine, Clive Reid, um, who has worked in the aviation industry in the region for about 134 years, I think, uh, something like that. Just about. Yeah, something like that. Um, uh, Clive uh, first worked for Gulf Air, um, and over the times that I've been in the in the, um, in the Nakil bar, uh, he's talked about things, and I thought it would be great. He likes the rugby as well, um, and we always have a few drinks. So, um, welcome, Clive. How are you? Oh, you good? Pretty good, thank you. Yeah. Pretty good. Well, yes, I came to the Gulf in uh, 1975 in January, and I was very fortunate in March of 1975. Yeah. Um, I represented Gulf Air and came down to Dubai to play in the Rugby Sevens. Um, uh, and presumably, how long had that been going for? Then? Uh, that, had been, that had been going since uh, 1971, I think it was. But in those days, of course, uh, it was only local sides. And you were playing yeah. on sand? Playing on sand yeah. with those bloody stones. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And I tell you, when you slid on those, on those stones, <laughs> yeah. you had marks on your body that took a long time to heal. Believe me. But I mean, I remember the, those days, and uh, it was a fantastic community of expats that, yeah. were, that were really interested was in rugby. At the old exiles ground. At the old exiles ground. Yeah. And in those days, of course, you had the country club, yeah. you had the rugby club, you had the Darjeeling Cricket Club. Yeah. And I was yeah. a member there for many, many years. Brilliant. You also had the Creek Football Club. Uh, right. So anybody who came into Dubai in those days, mm. if they went into that area, they will always meet somebody. Yeah. And to actually establish friends and a network, yeah. it was perfect. Everybody who was anybody was at the country club. Yes. And as a new person, you wanted to meet people. That's the, that was the place to go. So that's 1975. So industries of expats that were there then. Yeah, well, it was predominantly oil and gas. Yeah. yeah. Uh, big thing. Um, interestingly enough, um, there was also a lot of people working at, uh, at DP World. Mm -hmm. Because, oh, yeah. you know, the... the oh. Yeah. Because going back now, I mean, I'm talking about 1975 when I was yeah. in Bahrain. Yeah. Right. I didn't know Dubai particularly well in those days. I used to come down here for right. sports. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. But if we're talking about Dubai, yeah. Dubai's backbone yeah. has always been the airline of yeah. Emirates yeah. and the port. Yeah. That's the economic backbone. And of course, at the time, that was, was presumably that was owned by P&O, was it? Uh, yes. Um, P&O ports or something? Uh, well, put it this way. I think DP World was formed yeah. uh, just to manage, you know, they were the port management. Okay. okay. And uh, and again, um, the vision in the early days of, yeah. of, of, yeah. of Sheikh Rashid yeah. to actually consider building a port like that and bringing the sea inland about 30 kilometers Amazing. was extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Um, and I was privileged because once I, once I left, yeah. Emirates Airlines. I was uh, the HR advisor for the DP World for three so, years. So just go back a step. Explain that to me. So, for the for more than thirty kilometres, did they do some reclaim work? Yes, that? yes. Um, the interesting thing, from my yeah. point of view, was I mean, I was the chairman of the board of governors of yeah. Jebel Ali School. Right. And Jebel Ali School. Yeah. The first language that was spoken at Jebel Ali School was Dutch. Oh. 
because uh, of all because the all boys, the Dutch yeah. guys were yeah. coming in. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. were doing the dredging. Okay. They were building the you know the well yeah. the whole infrastructure okay. yeah. was it was Dutch. Wow. So the wow. school was bilingual Dutch yeah. and English. Right. And uh, it was a phenomenal thing. And the whole of Jebel Ali was basically developed to house the workers at the port, predominantly. Right. So when, that, when, the, uh, when the islands were being built, it was probably quite easy to make a few phone calls to get the guys back again. <laughs> and the interesting thing is that uh, when you built the port, yeah. the business followed because then you had the... The, the, the free zone mm. yeah, yeah. and all the industry started coming in and you mm. can imagine uh, it was the perfect infrastructure. So was the free, free zone, was that straight after the port or did that come a well, little bit later? I mean, put it this way, yeah. one drives the other sure. because it's it chicken and egg. Sure, yeah. sure. So you had, um, you can imagine, mm. you're, getting, you're getting container ships coming into the port, mm. okay? You need storage, yeah. Yeah, you need distribution yeah. centers. Yeah. So again, what what grew in Jebel Ali yeah. was that was this uh, enormous uh, supportive infrastructure, which developed further and further. Right. And you know, and it was and what the what the government realised was this was a very very good way of encouraging business to come into Dubai. Yeah. And they gave holidays of things like rent. Right. And uh, and uh, fees yeah. were made so attractive yeah, yeah. just to get the business in. Yeah, sure, 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 sure. And then it mushroomed from there. And you look at it today, my goodness. Yeah, no, it's incredible. It's incredible. Um, so when so let's 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 go back a, a, a while and and back on the aviation side of things. Yes. Yep. So you said that you'd come over from Bahrain in. Oh, yeah. In '75. So, what no. what brought you to to, to Gulf Air in the first place? Or okay. Know, well, again, uh, my story is a bit sort of diverse because I was working in Uganda. That's right. I at the you time of Idi Amin, and I was working yeah. as a as a kind of voluntary service overseas. I was a I was a teacher at a pre-university college in the bush, mm -hmm. and he was he was running the running the show there. Oh my God! Yes. Yeah. I was living on the banks of the Nile in a right. place called Namasagali, which is 30 miles north of the second city of Uganda, which was Jinja. And, uh, and in the years that I was there, I must have seen about maybe 30 bodies, you know, floating down the Nile mm. because it was the dumping ground. Uh, it was a very dangerous place, I have to say. So what years, what years were you there? I was there 1973 and 1974. And when did he, when did he throw out the, uh, 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 Obote, he he took over from Obote in 1971, yeah. and then his first action was to force yeah. all of the Asian community yeah. to accept Ugandan passports. Mm. And if they wouldn't accept Ugandan the, passports the rather than yeah. rather than their own oh, double yeah. passports, yeah. they had to leave. That was the reason. That was the reason. Okay. So uh, you had a huge exodus. So yeah. when I was there, the the kind of the gears of industry were slowing yeah. right down mm. because because all the little corner shops mm. had been run by Asians. Mm. You know mm. the uh, second-hand yeah. market, um, all of the little kind of fixits, yeah. uh, little engineering areas mm. disappeared. They all disappeared. Mm. So gradually, the you know the the industry there started to grind to a halt. Yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, well, it was it was trying times. 
I'm, I'm sure. Having seen the, the, the film based on the book called The Last King of Scotland. Yes. About, about the, the, yes, the, 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 Sc the, the Scottish yes. prison surgeon, was it? He was just a young doctor. That he went was out a young doctor. I mean, I never met him personally. I met yeah. Idi Amin twice. Yeah. Really? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, because I played rugby for Kampala. Oh. And Idi Amin, or in those days he was Sergeant Idi, was the first black player in the Nile Rugby Club. Okay. So in Ginger. Mm, and I, there were photographs of him yeah. in 1969, 1970, you know, when there he was, the only black player in, in what was uh, an all-white uh, expatriate team. team. So he looked like a pretty sturdy uh, number one? He was as tough as old boots, yeah. and he became uh, a heavyweight boxing champion of Uganda as well. <laughs> so this guy could handle himself, <laughs> you know, believe me. And um, and as I said, um, you know, he was. But he was, was he, edu he was educated in the UK. No, 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 no. no. He wasn't educated at all. No, uh, he was self-awarded VC as well, wasn't he? <laughs> so this whole, this whole last king and, and, and it, it had nothing to do with any connections with with the UK or anything. No, he just no. had a passion for Scotland. I don't know why. And well, he also had a passion at that time, believe it or not, for Princess Anne. He wanted to marry her. <laughs> I mean, the guy was a little bit uh, of a well, nutcase. She was looking pretty hot in the early 70s, so I've just recently watched The Crown. Yeah, well, yeah. anyway, Idi Amin had a bit of a fascination on the royal family at the time. Um, and as it happened, there was a guy called Martin who used to write in The Guardian. And when Martin used to write in scathing articles about Idi Amin, uh, unfortunately, the reaction of Idi was to take it out on us, who were the resident population at the time of, of Uganda. So um, systematically, what happened was while I was there, um, we, we had certain rights taken away from us. Wow. We couldn't send money back to the UK so easily. Yeah, so if yeah. you were trying to service a loan, yeah. or if you had a mortgage on any yeah. houses, mm. you were struggling. Well, and we, I mean, we know that he's incredibly was an incredibly volatile and nasty piece of work. So you, after two years there, I mean, you, you, you'd had enough after two years, I presume? I didn't have a choice. Okay. Because I was kicked out okay. of Uganda okay. along with the British Embassy. Oh, wow. Oh. Okay. So yeah, you this, was, this was December 1974. Okay. So, um, and what, what happened, and just for your information, um, you know, they, Idi Amin stopped all foreign exchange. Yeah. So we couldn't take any money out. So we were leaving Uganda with nothing. nothing. So you still got a bank account sitting over there now? No, that was all, that was all uh, finished. But what I had was all these Ugandan shillings in those days. And in those days, Ugandan shillings is about 18 Ugandan shillings to one pound sterling on the official exchange rate. Oh, so you're walking around like a milkman, were you? So what I did, I actually sponsored some kids oh, brilliant. to go through their, their education. Oh, that's great. So to pay their fees. Because how what else, gonna do? Yeah, what else yeah. was I going to do? So that's what I did. Um, so all my money basically went to help uh, three, three uh, Ugandan students. They were all 14 or 15. Oh, that's yeah. brilliant. So that took them hopefully through to a university level. Were you able to keep in contact with them? Or? Unfortunately, and this is a sad thing, uh, they went missing or they were, sh or they were killed. Because oh, again, yeah. it was the educated, the yeah, educated sure, sure. people oh, that sure. were the enemies of ED. Right. So though in those days, it was, uh, it was tough. So Clive, so Clive, you left, um, 
you left there penniless. Yes. And and, yeah. and, and what was the transition then from from teacher uh, to voluntary uh, teacher, volunteer teacher, to, to, to come and to join Goldfair? Well, I came back to the UK yeah. without any money, yeah. signed on the door, yeah. uh, and that's the only time in my life that I was ever on the door. And I was on the door 1974, December 74. Yeah. Um, I was on the door for just four weeks. And then I looked at an article in the papers and it said, wanted English language teachers in the Gulf. So I thought, well, I had an, a, an English language teaching qualification and I applied and I was sent to Gulf Air. I worked for a company called Polyglot in those days. And polyglot means mm. many languages. And polyglot had contracts with various companies. Mm. And the company that I was allocated to happened to be Gulfair. Right. So I came into <laughs> Gulfair in January 1975. Okay. Okay. As an English language teacher. But for me to teach properly some students, mm. I needed to understand the work that they were doing. So, very good of Gulfair, they allowed me to enroll myself on various courses. So I learned check-in, I learned about dangerous goods, mm -hmm. I learned about load control, right. and I basically familiarized myself with a lot of the processes. With a lot of the processes. Brilliant. So then, of course, when I was teaching, I knew what I was talking about. Fortunately, within three months, Gulfair said, we want you, and we want you to work for us. And I said, well, that's fine, but uh, I mean, my company uh, may not allow that. So <laughs> anyway, Polyglot said, under no circumstances can you do that. Yeah. So Gulfair said, here's a ticket, go home, enjoy yourself for a couple of weeks, and come back on a contract. <laughs> yeah. As easy as that. Yeah. Fantastic. Brilliant. And then, and then it took off, I suppose, because I became um, uh, an English language teacher. Then I became uh, in charge of the English language department. Yeah. Then they put me in charge of the broader sections. And then I, I eventually ended up as the deputy training manager of, of, of Gulf Air. So just for my <coughs> uh, um, aviation nerdiness, yes. when you started, what, how big was the fleet? What was the fleet? Okay. Well, the fleet um, in, in uh, Gulf Air, um, let me just think, it was, um, gosh, I'm... I'm You've got me there. Let me just have to rethink about this. Right, sorry. No, no, no. It's um, what were they flying in those days? Um, there was a light aircraft division, first of all, where you had sky vans okay. and you had uh, um, Fokker friendships. And, and these were all used for flying around the GCC, presumably. That's right. Local flights. And, yeah. and, and they were the bread and butter routes, to okay. be honest with you. Yeah, right. um, and, and they were also feeders yeah. into the long haul. Mm. It was the VC-10s yeah. were the most important of the aircraft yeah. that, uh, that uh, Gulf Air had at the time, right. the VC-10. And uh, my wife, of course, yeah. was, was uh, uh, that I met yeah. while I was in uh, Bahrain, she was a, a cabin crew. Yeah. And even when you talk to her today, yeah. and you say, what was the best aircraft that you've ever flown on? Really? Actually, the VC-10, overpowered, yeah. Tremendous real gas guzzlers. Yeah. Was it the one that there wasn't the one with the square was it the square windows or 
Okay. But uh, sorry, I'm yeah, sorry. no, no. <laughs> That's why they call me the aircraft shuttle. Oh no, no. But the anyway, <laughs> I think yeah. But the fleet of VC tens yeah. yeah. were, were fantastic. Um, and, and of course, at the time, um, Emirates didn't even exist. I guess. Oh, good lord, no, 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 no. So no, this no, was no. it was a precursor and was the uh, the. the the, the major, if only, existing uh, wide-bodied fleet in in the region. It was at the time. Absolutely right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and was this, sorry, was it still the, the, did Abu Dhabi was the connection with the other Gulf states then? The Gulf yes. States, the, yeah. But see, Gulf Air mm. was owned by four states. Yeah. All right. And when I said earlier, the the future of Gulf Air was always going to be in doubt. Right. The future prosperity. Yeah. Because first of all, the headquarters was in Bahrain. Yeah. Uh, Gata wanted a piece of the action, so they got all the simulators, the the, the flight simulators. Yeah. Abu Dhabi got the engineering. Right. Gamco. And Gamco. Yeah. yeah. And Muscat, of course, uh, Oman got the light aircraft division, which became Oman Aviation. Okay. Okay. So everybody wanted a piece of the pie. And it was diversified and split up, and it was never going to succeed. Well, put it this the, way. the vested interests of the various parties, I guess. Yes. Well, right at the very beginning, yeah. political decisions yeah. were more important than commercial decisions. Okay. I think I remember you saying that before, and I couldn't remember exactly why, but it makes complete sense. I understand. Yeah. Well, again, yeah. Um, yeah. as I said, it was the demise of of, of Gulfe. Okay. Because at the time they had the monopoly in this yeah. region, yeah. they were a superb flight. Yeah. You know. They went into the TriStar. Mm. The TriStars replaced uh, mm. the VC tens, mm. and of course, in those days, they called it the Five Star TriStar. Right. Yeah. It was the most nice, beautiful, beautiful. <coughs> and the the equipment within that. Yeah. Um, Gulf Air initially had two gold seats, you know, for the VIPs. And they were huge. Weren't they? they were huge. That was the engine on the back. And, and then that's right two yeah yes yeah, yeah. three and yeah. yeah and um and again the tristar yeah. um took gulf air forward yeah. and uh, and again it was a, a good aircraft at the time yeah um as i said the vc10 stayed on for a while yeah but then they were eventually phased out yeah. and so on but we still had the kind of smaller aircraft mm -hmm. uh, the fokker friendships were still you know buzzing around the gulf right uh 44 seater so you, when you say, so you began, where would you go? You began to Dubai or to Dubai have an airport? Oh, Dubai, of course. Yeah. Dubai. Um, and what yeah. I will tell you now, what yeah. I will tell you now, and this is a very important thing that a lot of people don't necessarily understand. But what happened was Dubai was always a free port. Hmm. Yeah. It never gave Gulf Air any protection at all. Because it was owned, first of all, Abu Dhabi owned owned part of, of, of Gulf Air. Gulf Air. Mm -hmm. Dubai was never, ever featured as any owner right. and certainly didn't give any protection. As an open port, any airlines were welcomed. It was sixth freedom. Right, right, right. So any aircraft could come in here, pick yeah. up passengers for onward carriage. Right. Okay? No protection to Gulf Air whatsoever. This really upset the powers that be at that time mm. in um, in Gulf Air. So in 1984, in in the uh, in the autumn of 1984, they held a meeting, and and of course um, here Sheikh Mohammed actually at the time attended the meeting. Okay, right. and he was asked very politely, 
are you going to give us protection and freedom, you know, protection for welfare yeah. at Dubai Airport? And he said, look, my father, Sheikh Rashid, proclaimed Dubai as an open port. So we are not going to give any favoritism to anybody. Mm. So they said, well, in which case, you know, we will consider the spring schedule. And what happened? The spring schedule, they reduced, Gulf Air reduced the flights to and from Dubai right. from 92 to 29. Right. Okay. So they, they, they thought that they could actually push them, push them out, blackmail them, yeah, 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 you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and to force them to give protection. So who, who else was who, who else was coming into Dubai in those days? Um, Qantas was always there. British Airways was a big thing. Singapore yeah. Airlines, Cathay Pacific, you know, they were all part. They were all, they're, they're all because yeah. it was a it was a, a stop off yeah, sure. en route. That's right. And, and but prior to that, of course, um, I can remember going through to to Australia um, uh, as a young kid. Everything was via Bahrain at the time. That's right. It, it, but then, all of a sudden, it, 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 well, it was going elsewhere. It wasn't always Dubai, but it was like, and there, and there was a definite shift between between the two. That's right. Yeah. You see, don't forget, yeah. Bahrain was yeah. the business yeah. and the trading center of yeah. the Gulf. Yes. It yeah. was the hub yeah. of the Gulf. Yeah. So again, um, but coming back to the point, when they, when they reduced the flights, um, Sheikh Mohammed went along to a further meeting which was being held just before the spring schedule was to, mm -hmm. due to take place there was another meeting right. and he pleaded with them mm -hmm. to reinstate these flights yeah. and they said are you going to give us uh, protection no no okay he came back from that yeah the first thing he did was to call morris flanagan <laughs> okay who was the uh, ceo yep. at the time of donata right. and donata was always regarded as an organization which was to all intents and purposes an airline mm. without any aircraft. Right. They had engineers, they had all of the infrastructure. Oh, so Donata was Donata was the real father okay. out of which Emirates was born. Okay? So he came back and he said to Maurice Fanigan, the future of Dubai cannot rely on Gulf Air. They had the plans already for the yeah. expansion of Dubai back in those days. Mm. So he said, the only way for Dubai mm. is to create our own airline. And, and, How and, much do you need? And when is this again, Clive? Just for this the benefit of... This was 1985. This is 85. April? When, April? When, when, when Rick was born. Yeah. Not quite. I, was, I left school in 1985. <laughs> but thanks for your input, Ray. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the way, Ray the vet's in. Yeah, you can tell. Welcome. Yeah. But this was but this was April 1985. So it's about time to lease some Okay. So anyway, came back. He said, how much will you need to Morris Flanagan to start up an airline? Now, Morris was taken completely by surprise. Yeah. And he didn't quite know what to say. So he just said off the, off the top of his head, um, $10 million. <laughs> a, check, a check was written there and then. Brilliant. And given to him. Off you go. Off you go. Just do it. Of course. Morris had a good night that night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, yeah. but I think the um, the best partner that that Emirates had before Emirates was even named, you yeah. know, the partner was PIA, was it Pakistan really? International, International Airlines. Airlines. Yeah. 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 All right. Because what they did, 
Um, and Zia ul Haq at the time yeah. was the uh, was the president of Pakistan. Yeah. And he was a big uh, friend of the UAE at yeah. the time, particularly Dubai. Yeah. And again, what he did, he uh, leased three aircraft, a 727, an old B, uh, you know, one of the, the old um, uh, B... Um, six, yeah, BAE? BAE? No, no, no. Um, what do you call it? Um, uh, oh, one of the early Airbus, you know, uh, the, the, anyway, he, he gave us um, a 737, yeah. a 727, and one of these old these Airbus, yeah. an okay. old Airbus. And, um, and what he said was, we will lease that, we will wet lease that to you. Yeah. We'll give you the cruise, yeah. all right? And only pay us back when you've got cash flow. Good deal. So like that it. was fantastic. Yeah. So Zia ul Haq became a real favorite mm. of the royal family here. Mm. And guess who opened the Emirates Golf Club? No, go on. Zia ul Haq okay. was invited. Wow. And he hit the first shot wow. on that yeah. golf course. That'd be a good trivia question, Rex. We'll yeah. use that yeah. next. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Yeah, well, um, and it was, and of course, all of our early cabin crew yeah. were PIA trained. Okay. And so you could hit the ground running. That's right. And the yeah. first, the first training of new staff at yeah. the time took place in Pakistan. So. Scroll on a few more years. Yes. You were working for golf with a, a, a couple of other individuals. Oh, yes. Um, yes, yes. Uh, and which I think you'll probably tell us about shortly. Um, at, at what point did you then make the switch from golf uh, to, uh, to to Emirates? And, and perhaps can you tell us who, who that was with, which is okay. quite interesting. Well, f well, all I can say to you, yeah. you know, uh, at the time, yeah. golf nationalization within, within Gulf Air yeah. was going at a pace. Okay. So all most of the expatriates were feeling a bit vulnerable anyway. Okay. And that was even then. Even then, mm. this oh. was uh, from 1881, 82 onwards. Really. Um, you know, it was not a a particularly welcoming place now, and uh, they were encouraging more and more Gulf nationals. Qatar was pushing for more and more people coming into the organisation, mm. whether they earned the right or not. Uh, my job as uh, in charge of training was yeah. I was offering scholarships to various people. Yeah. I was sending people to the UK. I had mm. to travel to the UK a lot, mm. put them into various uh, colleges and schools. Yeah. Um, Gulf Air invested heavily, mm. really heavily, and the payback was literally minimal. Mm. Mm. Um, so was, wasn't it not uh, the biggest employer on the island? In, 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 in Bahrain? Sorry, oh yes, yeah. I mean Gulf yeah. Air was one of the biggest employers. Yeah. Uh, you also had um, the the um, of course you had the uh, Alba, which was the, the aluminium, aluminium smelter, yeah. was the, probably one of the other big ones. Mm. Um, yeah, they, but they but certainly mm. I think Gulf Air was by far and away the biggest employer. Mm. And um, but there we are. And uh, as I said, um, we we. Uh, had this this check for ten million dollars mm. from Sheikh Mohammed, and from April, first flight, mm. October the twenty fifth. Mm. Six months later, mm -hmm. in aviation terms, unheard of, right. from a zero mm. to a start and a first flight. Amazing. And guess where the first flight went to? I got a rough idea. Does it start with P? 
No, it was Karachi. <laughs> that was the very first flight. Yeah. Now you asked me who who came from Gulf Air yeah. in those days. And, and, I did, said to and you, where did he go? Well, yeah. number one, yeah. um, Tim Clark. And he was working with you? He was working and, with me. He and I were yeah. uh, working with colleagues. Yeah. And Tim Clark um, very quickly realized that his, his actual uh, department at the time was finance within Gulf Air. He wasn't being looked after. They didn't. They never recognised his talent. They were always promoting people, you know, who were Gulf nationals. Yeah, sure, sure. And of course, he felt that there was no future, mm. as we all did eventually. Yeah. At different yeah. times. Okay. Okay. So when again, when Morris Flanagan yeah. had this offer of ten million dollars, his first thoughts were, "Who now mm. can I actually look at?" Mm. And he um, had this marketing manager's position, mm -hmm. and Tim Clark got that job as the marketing manager at the beginning. Yeah. So he joined mm -hmm. before the launch mm -hmm. of Emirates. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he was responsible for the early marketing of, of Emirates. Yeah. Um, Peter Hill had. Peter Hill. Yeah, Peter, Peter Hill, Hill yeah. had left earlier. Mm -hmm because he also, but he was predominantly a Donata man. Mm. And at the time, you know, Donata was doing all right, mm. yeah. but Peter saw opportunities. Sorry, he was working for, uh, the, uh, he was working for um, a company called Asgill and Bahrain Airport Services in right. those days. Okay. Mm. And he saw the opportunities to work for Donata. Okay. So Peter Hill left in, I think it was 1982, yeah, he came mm -hmm. down. So, and of course, when the airline started, yeah, he made the switch right. into the airline. Mm -hmm. And and uh, scroll. On. So, when did you when when did you get answer the call? Um, I left. I, I left Gulf Air. Yeah. In um, I left Gulf Air in December 1986. I went to Oman to look at 200 young Omanis to be trained in various parts of the aviation industry. Yeah. I had to go to New Zealand to, with Air New Zealand. Right. At the time, because tell me more about this. Because they were training on the Fokker Friendship, okay. and Air New Zealand at the time were one of the biggest users of the Fokker Friendship, right. and their training facility in Christchurch yeah. was second to none. Mm. And they was um, Air New Zealand. What I realised about Air New Zealand, because they're so remote, yeah. the engineering facilities there were so good. Really, I because didn't because really. the alternative yeah. is to transport these aircraft thousands and thousands of miles to get them serviced. Okay. Yeah, right. So they became probably the most self-sufficient airline yeah. in the world. Yeah. And their facilities were just superb. There was there were still engines being sent down years later to Christchurch. Abs all the way absolutely. Yeah. And do you know what I saw in Christchurch, which I never thought they had one of these um, narrow narrow engine and sorry, narrow aircraft. Yeah. And within forty five minutes they could it was like a like a passenger like a cargo carrier, mm. yeah. very small car. They could convert that into a passenger pod, mm. and within forty five minutes, it could be this pod could fit into the fuselage right. to seat six people to take them to Antarctica. Wow! wow. And it was extraordinary wow. how how they designed this, you yeah. know, yeah. and so the creativity, the innovation, yeah. was absolutely superb. Yeah. I have to say. 
And that's my fondest memory of Air New Zealand, was how self-sufficient and how creative and innovative they were. So that was you covered from um, Oman for a year, including a yes. trip to New Zealand. And then, and then, I got the and then you got the call. I got the yeah. call yeah. to say, would you be interested in applying for a job as the deputy trader, trading manager of this fledgling airline? This small little... Small little airline. So I... Yeah. And there was an older guy from British Airways who was in charge of training at the time. I became his deputy. Okay. When I joined Emirates, when I joined Emirates, yeah. six aircraft, six aircraft, six aircraft, with their own branding this time, yeah. and, and you know, pilots, yeah. uh, the captain, the first officer, yeah. everybody knew everybody. Brilliant, right? Uh, it was such a, it was a family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I used to joke and I say, you know, the captain knew the first officer and his wife. <laughs> <laughs> but the cabin crew also knew each other. Okay, so let's uh, let's just um, picture Dubai at that time. So where, well, was, where was everyone living? Everybody right. was living um, in in various parts of, of Dubai, um, mostly Creekside or close to the um, creek. No, it was mostly towards the Jumeirah end. Okay, because right. again, um, uh, Jumeirah was starting to develop. Yeah, right. and of course along the um, um, Chicago Sheikh Beach, Zayed, along Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Zayed Road. Yeah. Right all these blocks of flats were, yeah. were growing up and of course most of the cabin crew were being put up in those flats okay. which which they were right through to the 90s. yeah yeah so yeah. that stretch yeah. probably housed 75 80 percent of the cabin crew Got it. you know it was uh, incredible i mean i remember mm. i was housed in a place called sheikh ahmed villas mm. which was opposite uh, park and shop in those days okay and, and i used to drive a jeep from the back of my house to the sea over dunes. Yeah, amazing. And the first house I came to was Maurice Flanagan's house, one of the very few houses right. on the coast. And it was just desert. So, and you know, one of the things I remember about Dubai in those days, mm. the desert was only a half an hour away. Sure. Literally, yeah. a little drive, yeah. and you're in the middle of nowhere. Mm. Light contamination was nowhere near what it is today. Mm. So the stars, you know, the, yeah. the beauty of the desert, I was so appreciative yeah. in those days. And I belonged to a place called, uh, a company called the, the, Bajero, the Bajero Club. And yeah. we used to go out on the weekends, and I tell you, I saw sights, yeah. deer, gazelle, mm. that you saw, yeah. um, incredible. Well, can I ask yeah? a question? At that time, uh, the cabin crew were originally from where? Um, they Great were, question, right? Great yeah. question. Um, Pakistanis were still the greatest number at the start mm -hmm. because of the links with PIA. Mm -hmm. yeah. But then a whole series of events happened. Let me give you one example. Yeah. This huge strike with the Qantas pilots yeah. and the Qantas crews. Oh, was that not just Qantas? Was that the big thing in Australia? It was a in eighty nine. Australia, eighty nine. I remember that. Eighty nine. Yeah. And also at the time in South Africa. Yeah. And and as, as Zimbabwe, mm. you had incredible problems with Mugabe. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm telling you is that we suddenly had a huge influx from the southern hemisphere. And the, yeah. and the aviation world was talking amongst themselves, saying, "Come up here. This place is great." Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. And yeah. we suddenly had a whole influx, not just from Europe and Britain, 
but right. from the from the southern hemisphere. Well, was the influx was it actually to sustain the demand? How quickly you were growing as well? We were growing. Yeah. You know, we, we were growing so fast. Yeah, and if I can say one thing about Emirates's um, uh, journey, yeah, it was a combination of really quality, high-level management, yeah, and good strategic thinking, mm. but also an awful lot of luck. Because having all these qualified pilots on the on the rubbish heap at the time, because due to the strikes, due to the strikes, yeah, yeah right. um, we we were able to pick the best when we had the Zimbabwe white pilots. Yes, sure. You know, be, being under real pressure, yeah, Mugabe. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. What was their outlet? Yeah, Emirates. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we picked the creme de la creme. We yeah. had some of the best pilots. Mm. Mm. We had the pick of the crop, mm. and it was a great time. So, and that um, helped set some of the the piloting culture and all of the good things that laid the foundation for years after. I guess. Well, I tell you another thing that happened. Yeah. Because I mean, I was responsible for Jebarani School. Yeah. yeah. With the influx of Southern Hemisphere kids, yeah, the quality of rugby in schools went, went right up. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, really. With young, young, yeah. young Aussies. Yeah. Yeah. You know, young South South Africans. Yeah. Yeah. My God, that's brilliant. They brought in this kind of level of expertise mm. at the age of 10, 11, mm. 12. Mm. Was there any grass pitches then? Um, there were one or two. I mean, Dubai College had a grass pitch. Right. Mm. Um, and I'm trying to think of where were the other grass pitches. But most of them, most of them yeah, were 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 sand. Old school. Old yeah. school. Well, yeah. You know, but but that. That southern influx mm. made a huge difference in many, many ways. More than you think. Yeah. More than you think. Yeah. It's, it's interesting actually uh, hearing about the young player, international player that turned up here, like JPR Williams. Wasn't he in Bahrain as a doctor or um, Saudi? He's, um, he certainly. I mean, as a, he was a surgeon. But he um, was out here for a while. He came out. Well, I'm. To be honest with you, I'm not 100% sure exactly when, yeah, right. but I do know that he, he did he did do some sojourns out here. Yeah. Um, I, but I can't tell you exactly mm. where yeah. and when. But um, players, there, was a, there was a guy from Bahrain, a guy called Paul Turner, who was a, nearly an all-black. He came out and was in Bahrain. So yeah, it's different people. Mm. And I think, one of, I think a couple of the Underwoods, the two brothers were Oh out yes, there. Derek Underwood, sorry, not, uh, um, Tony. Rory, Rory Underwood. Rory, Rory, uh, they, they were, and, oh, yeah. And and Tony is a, a, a well, I still think he's a he's a pilot for Emirates now. Tony Underwood. Uh, no, uh, yeah, Tony, Tony. Underwood. Um, he flew with EasyJet. Did he? Mm. Yeah, oh. it was EasyJet, I think. Okay. Um, no, but coming back to um, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Coming coming back yeah. the de the demographics of, yeah. of, of of this part of the world. Um, the it was a huge influx, and, and then, it was wonderful. And coupled with enormous growth. So, Co you had. Well, Emirates was growing exponentially. Yeah. And in fact, the problem with Emirates Airlines at the time yeah. was that the infrastructure couldn't keep up keep up with the size mm -hmm. of the organization. We were all we lived on adrenaline. Yeah, it must have been exciting though. I, mean, I mean, I was responsible. I mean, I started off as a deputy training manager. Yeah. yeah. And then I became the manager of the training center. Right. And then I became the general manager of training and development. Mm. And then, I, then they switched to the American, so I became a vice president of mm. trading and and then I became the senior vice president and, and of trading and development. But that entitled you as a twenty-year as a twenty-year time span. 
But and what it did as well, if I'm not mistaken, because I think you touched on this when we've been um, telling a few stories before, is that you flew wherever they were. Emirates were setting up a new um, line, and, yeah. you, and you had to get the ground staff on the other side completely drilled and my, set up. My my yeah, responsibility yeah. was signing off quality people to run to handle our aircraft. Sure. You know, making sure that the agencies that we were using sure. were up to speed. Okay. Um, I had the kind of licensing authority mm. and to make sure. And where did that take you, Clive? Uh, three example. times around the world. In the years that I worked for Emirates, sorry, I, I must yeah. have traveled around the world three times. But so you went, you, stations-wise, you started off with, obviously, Pakistan was number one. Then, then yeah. you went to... Yeah, well, the three places that we went to, yeah. Pakistan... Bombay, Cairo. Okay. No need for marketing money. Mm. No need to splash out on marketing. Mm. These were huge demands. Mm. Right. Okay. They they sold themselves. Mm. Yeah, sure. So our flights were always full to these places. So great. These were cash cows, and what they realized: mm. don't overextend too quickly. Yeah. yeah. Focus on your cash cows. Mm. Get. Get the kind of um, the money coming in. Get the revenue flow. Yeah. Okay. And then start. Then you can start thinking. So, so once the once the relationship with uh, Pakistan and the and the leased aircraft finished, and it was time to purchase, was that the relationship with Airbus? Is that yes. Well, but the, the first Airbus was purchased mm. in 1986. Wow. And it was the only year. It was the only year until 2008. Right. That we never made an absolute profit, right? Because we bought our first A310 in 1986. Wow! And and again, the point here was, we always believed that if you um, buy an aircraft, mm. keep it for a maximum of seven, maximum eight years, yeah, and then sell on. Same, it's the same model with taxis over here, isn't it? But yeah. it's only three and a half or four years, right? But the thing is, see, the thing is, in aviation terms, and, and, and you yeah. know this, mm. maintenance is expensive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the older the aircraft that you've got, the greater the cost. It comes to a point where yeah. your cost factor yeah. is huge. Yeah. Yeah. And it starts to impact on the revenue. Yeah. So, you know, and, and of course, time offline. Because mm -hmm. when an aircraft isn't in the air, it's not earning. Yep. When it's on the ground, it's yep. losing money. Yep. So Emirates always felt that making sure that your fleet was relatively new and modern, a bit like changing your car every two or three years, yep. it sense. meant that your maintenance costs were down. way down. Yeah. And also, your second-hand purchase prices were way up, as, as long as you can demonstrate that they were well-maintained. Okay. Unfortunately, Mm. Dubai had an excellent reputation, mm. or Emirates had an excellent reputation mm. for maintenance standards. Well, and I, and I think I think Emirates, from a from a, a very young age, and I'm kind of like vaguely aware of that Emirates existed in the in the late eighties, I think. But it was always, oh, go with Emirates or Singapore Airlines, yeah. and they they were the two that even then I think had a had a, a great reputation for being wow. great carriers. You, do, do you know what our first motto was? Our first mm. slogan: mm. the Oasis in the Sky. Okay, makes it. Yeah, yeah. that's brilliant. Clive, yeah. There's, a, there's an old boss of mine, and you probably know him, a guy by the name of Stuart Wheeler. Yes, 
I do. So Stuart used to be my old boss, he's, and he started a company here called Air Charter International. And he originally came out here with Airbus mm. when the two, mm. when the first aircraft were purchased. And um, he was, and his famous quote was, Airbus called him into an office, called him back to the south of France, and said, this, this little uh, Oasis airline really doesn't look like it's going to be doing much. So, <laughs> so um, you have to come back to France. And at that time, Stuart said, yeah, I don't think so. I'm quite used to it out here now. And um, that's when he started up Air Charter International. Wow. Wow. You know the slogan, sorry to, yep. the, the slogan of the Portuguese uh, TAP? Um, I, I, I heard one, but I'm not going to say it. Take another plane. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good, right? Nothing like backing your own country's <laughs> yeah. airline, is there, Ray? I mean, that's great to know. TAP will be thrilled with that. and he came to do some uh, uh, help us uh, and, and guide us and do some training with the staff. And uh, I remember as an epiphany, you know, it was a moment that I saw the light that changed my life. He's a man with a lot of energy, honestly. Uh, I mean, that probably should have his own podcast. Uh, uh, his stories, the way he puts things, the way so many friends, and all, always with a smile, and uh, with the details, with all the history of, uh, I believe that uh, probably UAE and Clive have uh, uh, so, so, many, so many things in common. Uh, but um, uh, what I want to, to say is that uh, he must not leave this table without uh, doing what he's best at, and he's telling some few jokes. If you want us to go for about two and a half hours. Another thing is that uh, I want to bring to the table today is that uh, Rex is not drinking. So if you see that he's what? not on his top form. Jesus, uh, he's just sunk that one. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I was on. Uh, the, the brand new Heineken, well, it's brand new over here, Heineken Double O, um, which, I, which, which I can say um, tastes as good as some of the pints that I've had here, even without alcohol. So, um, we're obviously looking for new sponsors, Heineken, if there's anyone out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, uh, yeah, we, we obviously take that on for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think there's one thing that I want to say yeah. before, you know, and, and then I. When I talked about luck, mm. and I talked about uh, that being part of the Emirates journey, mm -hmm. when 9-11 took place, mm -hmm. of course, the world's aviation industry was in absolute turmoil. Yeah. I mean, people were very frightened of flying. Um, airlines were cancelling orders left, right and centre mm. with Airbus and with Boeing because they were so concerned about the future. And it was a time where sensitivities were very very high mm -hmm. the confidence of the public was very very low yeah so convinced was the government of dubai 
So convinced was the management of Emirates about the future that they gave the biggest deal in aviation history at that time. Of 2001. Yeah, 2001 of $16 billion. And what they did, they were able then to pick up all these orders that had been cancelled with, with Boeing and with Airbus. They were able to negotiate incredible deals and huge discounts because they were the only airline in the market yeah. at that time yeah so they were in pole position so and was it was that order in 2001 was that was it a380 then predominantly a380s yeah. and seven and triple seven triple seven right. yeah you know and they they had already laid it all out for the future the first, um, one, the first one came uh 2008 that that, yeah but what i'm what i'm yeah um, and yeah, I, I, the details, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. But what I'm saying here is that all of the future investments were pegged at that time. The second thing that was a huge, um, shall we say, calculated gamble which paid off was that the euro was being floated. You're right. Around about 2001, 2002. Yeah. And uh, our finance guy at the time, our top finance guy, mm. Dermot Mannion, right. and Dermot became a CEO of Aer Lingus, and Dermot started to peg a lot of Emirates loans on the Euro, okay. realizing and expecting that the Euro would devalue when it would, when, when it would be launched, okay. and it devalued significantly by about 25%. So we got a double whammy of discounted prices. I mean, for example, a triple seven at the time was $120 million. Yeah. We picked up that for about a 30% discount. And then we had loans based on the Euro, which devalued. Smart, smart money. Smart, it's yeah. just smart thinking. Yeah. So do you think it would, do you think, you know, you, you talk about the different individuals and, and you can sort of feel the way you're talking about how much fun it was is it is it it's the expat person it's someone who's sort of going outside their comfort zone so to speak well all i can say to you is this look in the early days of of, of emirates mm. you had to be all things to all all yeah, men right, right. you were doing things that you would not normally be involved in no um when you get very big you become so specialized mm. so narrow in your work mm. okay and maybe, maybe part of the excitement goes out of it because yeah, sure. it becomes more routine then. Yeah, exactly. But in the early days of Emirates, everybody was living on adrenaline. Yeah, right. Things were happening so fast. Mm. You know, even choosing crockery, you know, yeah. I mean, and tasting foods and so on. Yeah. You were brought in just like that. That to, must have been an incredible atmosphere ah, and environment. The atmosphere so was fantastic. Exciting. Exciting. Mm. Yeah. And you know, we were all wanting to see Emirates, you know, really moving forward and yeah, succeed. Yeah. So I, I, I just think that um, it was very, very good that the quality of the people that were brought in. Yes. And I'm not including myself here. <laughs> oh, yeah, but the quality yeah. of the people that were brought in. Um, and also Sheikh Ahmed bin yeah. Saeed, yeah. who was brought in, you know, as, as the chairman. Mm. His, I would say, his uh, talent was that he knew the people that he could rely on mm. and have as that circle mm. 
to actually give him good advice. Yeah. Very good. And that, I think, was one of the success stories as well of Emirates. Mm. And Sheikh Mohammed mm. always said, and, and, he, and Sheikh Ahmed also yeah. told me personally, mm. if I get uh, pressure on families to bring their sons into the, into the organization, you will interview them, okay? Yeah. You will interview them, and whatever, whatever is agreed, whatever you decide, I will, I will abide by. Mm. I may give them a second chance, yeah. because that's my uh, duty to the families. Yeah. Yeah. But Sheikh Ahmed realized very early on, you cannot compromise safety in the airline business. Yeah. And people had to earn the right mm. to do what it is that they should be doing. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is, uh, in my opinion, a brilliant story that resumes the mentality of this country, isn't it? And yeah. so how they uh, still stick with the values of, uh, of their uh, culture, but mm -hmm. they know when it's business. You Absolutely. Need to deliver, yeah. and you need, when it's the nation's uh, future, <coughs> yeah. you can't go easy, and you need to be professional, and you need to have the best. And they, they, they always. Uh, they, they, that's a very nice. Sheikh Mohammed's advisors that he's had trusted advisors for 40, 50 years, the likes of Maurice Flanagan. Absolutely. Um, uh, Cole McLaughlin. Yeah. All yeah. the same names just keep coming around. Exactly. You know, they, they yeah. just, they, yeah. they just, the same names keep springing up all the time if and they've you, been very good people. If you have the wrong yeah. voices in your ear, yeah. you will make the wrong decisions. Yes, yes. Like that. that hasn't happened here. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think this is one of the ways in which Emirates went from zero to hero. And yeah. I have to say yeah. this, yeah. because when you think about it, and what people don't realize, in 1985, mm. before October 85, mm. there was no Emirates. Yeah, yeah. Okay? And it's now, crazy. Think about it. and now when you think about it, well, it's now it's one of the biggest brands in the world. In the world, mm. yeah. So something fantastic happened in that journey. Do you think? Because um, really, the first time I got to know uh, the UAE coming from New Zealand was the Dubai World Cup. Yeah. Did that have a big part? Oh, look at the country. Oh my God! I'll give you an example. Yeah. Qantas refused to sponsor the Australian cricket team in the 1997 World Cup. Right. Emirates jumped in. Oh, mm. yeah, sure. Okay, they jumped in. Yeah. And then Ricky Ponting and all his men won the well, World Cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there they were, bouncing up and down for these photographs who went around the world with their Emirates cats on, hats yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. And I tell you, the Australian government, yeah. they started to give all kinds of concessions. Yeah. To this part of the world, believe oh, me. Yeah. Okay. And I tell you what, wherever Emirates goes, yeah. business follows. Mm -hmm. And believe me, you know, when you think about the investments, we invested in Collingwood. Yeah. Okay. We invested in the uh, Western Force in the Rugby Union. Yeah. Melbourne Cup. The Melbourne Cup. Yeah. Emirates realized yeah. hearts and minds. Well, you've got name. You've got name. You get into sport yeah. in particular. Yeah. Name stadia. You've got the Arsenal. Ah, the Arsenal. Arsenal. Yeah. You know, I, I think. I think there's a. Is there a baseball stadium oh, uh, in, know, in America in the US? It's club. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. I, I, mean, I think it goes to uh, ice hockey and. Does it really? Wow. It stretches. And this is. Yeah. And you know. And Real Madrid. Right. Yeah. 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 Amazing. 
to see to me all right um and i and i and i know tim clark very well as you know yeah. um sometimes we barbecue with each other uh, i always go to the sevens he's my i'm always his guest at the sevens yeah. when it was running yeah. and that's when i catch up yeah. his his vision was always dubai one-stop shop to any parts of the world yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was always his vision. And that's what it is. And that's yeah, exactly right. what it is. No, exactly. You go from Christchurch mm. to Newcastle. Mm. One stop, Dubai. So, I mean, that's really the whole thing. I mean, we've gone on for much longer than we would love Sorry. to. But, but Clive, don't apologize. Thank you very much. You've been brilliant. And I knew you'd be brilliant because yeah. you've got so many good stories. Will you come again um, in a couple of weeks? We'll talk about other things as well. It's just great. So we've got the start of, um, of Emirates right to where we are today. And there's, uh, there's, there's so much more we could talk about, but people can only listen to our voices, particularly um, Hamos and mine so much. Exactly. They could listen to yours so much more. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, we'll, shall we wrap up and we'll, we'll go for another quiet Heineken 0.00? Absolutely. And, um, Absolutely. And, and look forward to listeners coming in again next week no well thank you thank you so much this has been thanks clive great love to Pleasure. hear your story Pleasure. and uh, we all love this place but i think we sometimes forget about the history of, yeah. of what made this place it is so. well i've been privileged to be a part of uh, not only the growth of emirates mm. uh, but as part of the growth of dubai mm. and its mark on the world's landscape and um well you're front and center to that clive Thank you, you really are. Thank you. And Claude, you're our first guest speaker on the captain's table. Yeah. So um, we're now on. You've uh, set the bar very high, Clive. Exactly. <laughs> episode four or five. Apparently, uh, we've got to wait to episode 100 before it really kicks in. But um, <laughs> we'll, we'll put this down as a marker as one of the, the first real well, goodies. Tell you what, it's brilliant. Thanks so, a lot. Maybe Good. I think you have Barack Obama next week, but I don't know if you can. No, it's Tom Cruise. He's uh, he's still giving us Tom Cruise and Val at the moment is a is a maybe, which yeah, is yeah. Uh, we're, we're having issues with Scientology with, yeah, uh, yeah. with book dates and stuff. But no, yeah. that's great. Okay, so we're signing off. We are. Have a good Thanks, week, everyone. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye. Cheers, guys. Oh.